0: O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that He might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life. Grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as He is pure. That when He comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like Him in His eternal and glorious kingdom, where He lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the Collect appointed for today, Sunday, November the 13th, 2022. You're listening to... Faith-seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks very much for being along today. I appreciate it. I hope you um, either are planning to have or preparing to have a a blessed Sunday in worship or that you have already worshiped today uh, and that it was a great blessing to you and you you experienced the presence of the living God through the power of the Holy Spirit in that worship today. So we are um, two weeks Literally just two more weeks before Advent, which seems just absolutely impossible to me. But then again, it always seems impossible to me. We had a, a, a good week this week here in Asheville. The uh, the weather's changing finally. We we had a couple of days in the seventies and early in the week. And Suzanne went and I went out on Tuesday and had a had a really nice hike. And then started. We tried to go out again on Thursday, but this hurricane thing, um, the the remnants of it, were here and. When we got to where we were going to go, it was completely covered in cloud and rainy. And so I decided, you know what? I don't think I need that in my life today. So we came on home. We had a nice dinner last night with our son, Pelham, who's in town for a few days. We're headed out there uh, the following week. So uh, in about, well, exactly a week. So um, looking forward to, to being with them. Uh, enjoyed being with them last night. And so looking forward to a good week coming up. We're... Um, Entering into one of the busiest seasons of the year for most of us, and uh, I'll, I'll pray that that the Lord blesses you in such a way during this season of Advent that that the busyness isn't the thing that overwhelms you, and you're overwhelmed by his Spirit as you prepare to greet Him anew um, in the Incarnation, the celebration of the Incarnation on December the 25th. So, uh, anyway, we've we've had a good week. It's been Nothing exciting, I think, happening this week. Talked to a bunch of friends, that I, some of whom I hadn't talked to in a while, so that, that always makes for a good week. So today, as we move towards Advent, um, one of the things that, that the lessons are intended to do beginning in, oh, I don't know, maybe early October, that they're, they're designed in such a way that they should make us uncomfortable with the world that we're in, uncomfortable with maybe who we are at the moment in the world that we're in, uh, to remind us and open our eyes to the fact that all is not, that glitters is not gold, and so it's to prepare us to pray, um, come Lord Jesus, Amen. Quick, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, the the way that we begin today is in Isaiah the sixty fifth chapter, verses seventeen to twenty five, and it's painting a, a vision of the future that should be compelling for us and should cause our hearts to long for that. Well, the only way we can do that, to long for this, is to recognize the fallenness of the world that we're in. And then we can begin to lift our eyes and we can begin to see God's upward call, which is going to be the theme of today's um, sermon, I guess it is. So, so, it begins with, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's an interesting idea. You know, um, one of the things that, that um, we talk about here right now is, is, I wonder what Will's doing today. Well, day is a, a, an odd concept to start with. But the other side of it is, is that, that once we're with him, is this world this new heavens and the new earth, is is the old heavens and the old earth something that that you even pay any attention to? Or is it just gone as though it vaporized like a dream when we wake up? And so it's an interesting way of looking at it. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So it it sounds as though what it's saying is these things will just completely pass away from memory. and, and, And that's the way all tears are wiped away, is that there's no memory of the pain, there's no memory of the past. It's an interesting idea, this, this whole loss of memory thing. I have a friend at the gym who I've gotten to know a little bit better over the last few weeks, and he, he has had some pretty significant uh, health things that happened to him in his life, some of which were his own fault, and he'll readily admit that. Um, But but one of the things that's odd is he's lost his memory of memories, actually, of lots and lots of things. At one point, he didn't remember that he was even married and had a child. But recently, he he decided that um, he was told, hey, why don't you go back and start doing jujitsu again? Because he said, apparently, I used to do jujitsu and was pretty good at it. So he went back. And and went into the same group of people that he had been with before, who knew that he had been injured, but did not know that he didn't remember these things. So he said that that I said so. I'm really fascinated. There's this uh, subconscious memory and there's conscious memory. He said that's a really good thing. He said because he said I couldn't tell you if somebody gave me a situation and said what would you do to deal with this using jujitsu. He said I couldn't tell you that. But when I got in class, I reacted perfectly. So he has no memory of the past, no memory of learning jujitsu. And yet at the same time, he, he's, he's a capable and competent practitioner. It, it's so, and that is the way I kind of hear this, this creating the new heaven and a new earth thing. And the former things won't be remembered or come to mind. He says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So we're to be glad and rejoice forever in that which he creates. And then he says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So he's he's using exactly the same terms for the way God, quote, feels as he's telling us. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. There will be no untimely death. There's no death at all, in fact or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall not eat shall eat straw like the ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So God's painting a picture of this beatific future that, that will come in, in the age to come. And that, that beatific future is, is that there's no uh, untimely death. There's no uh, poverty. There's, there's nothing other than peace. You'll build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. These won't be taken away from you. You won't build in another inhabit or plant and another eat. No, there'll be, everything will be as it is intended to be, as it was intended to be, and as we all know it should be. And then he says, before they even call, I will answer. And while they're yet speaking, I will hear. There'll be this symbiotic relationship with God such that, that he is so close and so near to us and so understanding of who we are and what we want and need in life that he He responds even before we call and hears even before we're finished speaking. And then gives the picture of the wolf and the lamb grazing together. The lion eats straw like the ox. So nothing, uh, there, there won't be one Animal preying on other animals, and then dust shall be the serpent's food, which is, is a funny way of saying the curse that I placed on the serpent in uh, Genesis 3 that isn't going to change. Other things will, but that won't. He will hold him accountable throughout all eternity. It's a fascinating little statement there. And there'll be no hurting or destroying in all the holy mountains, says the Lord. And so we long for this heavenly Jerusalem. But, <laughs> and that's the problem, and, and the, the collect, in my mind, it, it's, it's a good collect, but <clears throat> what it talks about is that we may purify ourselves so that when he comes again, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom. And, and the problem with that can be that we become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. I didn't coin that. That's, that's an old phrase. But, but that's, that's the danger. I think, for Christianity, and, and it's, it, it is a particular danger in times when it's tough, it, it, when, when things aren't going our way, when things are going against us in so many ways, when we see the culture going to hell in a handbasket, then how do we react to that? Do we, do we fall back on sort of the, the romantic wish-dream of the future and therefore withdraw from the world, or, or do we engage in the world with the confidence— and the faith that ultimately God's in charge and that, that he has given us this world and this field in which to work and which to worship him. And, and I think it's easy to fall into the trap of, of withdrawal from the world whenever things don't go our way. Whenever we see what looks like culture um, and what we consider to be pagan culture even um, being celebrated and, and dominating. And, and telling us to shut up then do we do that or do we continue to speak out and speak up so in the in the epistle or not the epistle in the gospel today I think I think there's Jesus is, is issuing a corrective to the to the idea of of hunkering down getting in a bunker and hiding from the world or being fearful about the future so so listen to this so we, we're in Luke 21 verses 5 to 19. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, and so he's walking in the temple courts. This is you know, after he's come into the city for the final time. Some are speaking of the temple, how it's adorned with noble stones and offerings. So pe- people are saying to Jesus, che- check it out. Isn't it just absolutely beautiful? And it was. Jesus says, as for these things you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is saying, here's what you see today. Here's what I see. Here's exactly what I see. And I see that no less clearly than you see what is. I see what will be. And sure enough, at AD 70, about 37 years after the death of Jesus, that's exactly what happens. These stones will be thrown down. And they asked him. They believed him. Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So they believe, Jesus, that these things will be. They know in their heart of hearts that Jesus is telling the truth, that he is accurately prophesying what will happen. And he says, see that you're not led astray. Many will come in my name saying, I'm he, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So what he's saying is is that that there's going to be other people who claim to be me come again. You don't have to worry about that because everyone will know that that it will be unmistakable that I have returned. So don't worry about those things. Don't chase after people who make these claims. And then he says, but then you hear about wars and tumults. Don't be afraid. These things have to take place first, but the end won't be at once. In other words, there's a lot that's going to happen before the end. And he says... I don't know when that's going to be. He he said, I don't know the times and dates, and it's not something you should be worried about either. But he says, don't fear. Don't be terrified when you hear of these wars and tumults. Then he continues, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. So do we see nations rising against nations and kingdom against kingdom? We certainly do. You know, The most obvious place we see it right now is the Russia-Ukraine conflict that also involves us and most of the European Union. And then on other issues, the Chinese are kind of involved in that and all kinds of other people involved in it. So it's always true that those things are happening. And he says there'll be great earthquakes. Well, I've, I've seen and heard about multiple earthquakes over the last period of time. But again, throughout my life, that's always been true. Famines and pestilences. Well, we've just lived through a pestilence. And there are places that are that are predicted for famines over the next season of time. There are terrors and great signs from heaven, and, and people interpret these signs and, and and see these things and say, "Oh, there's a blood moon, so therefore that means something," and 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 God's trying to get our attention in all this. But those things, you know, kind of constantly appear. They're predictable when they're going to appear. No, Jesus is talking about something radically different from the norm. It's going to be a heightened. Um, bit of all of that. So before all this, he says, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. So he's gone from a, a macro view of things, you know, sort of the, the signs in the heavens, wars between nations and kingdoms and all that. And so he, he sees all of those things. And then he brings that down to today. And he brings it down to the personal level nation, uh, that they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Begs the question, right? Where are you going to be? But but he knows, and he, he's he's told them over and over and over again what will happen. And so, whatever expectations they might have had on Palm Sunday when they came in and heard Jesus acclaimed as the son of David, and asking him to deliver them, whatever their expectations were at that enthusiastic reception. A reception literally fit for a king because that's exactly the the imagery that they've created there is the reception of a king. But within a week, they will reject that king from serving over them. Jesus knows how this is going to end, and he's telling them, it's going to go the same way for you as it's going for me. They're going to lay hands on you and persecute you. They're going to deliver up to synagogues and prisons to be tried and then imprisoned. And you'll be brought before kings and governors, for my name's sake. And we see that in Paul's life. We see it in the the book of the Acts, where Paul is indeed brought before governors and kings. So all these things that Jesus says will happen on a personal level did, are, always will be. That will be your opportunity to bear witness. What sounds horrible becomes an opportunity for you. And that's the thing to grab hold of. That's an opportunity. It's not God's judgment on me. It's the world's judgment on Jesus. I'm his representative, and they recognize that. That's a good thing, that the world recognizes you as one of Jesus' disciples is a good thing. Good in an eternal sense, not in, in a personal and immediate sense. But Jesus says... Even though it doesn't feel good, it's going to give you an opportunity to bear witness. And then it says, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Don't do what all of us do, and that is play out difficult conversations in advance. All right? So he's going to say this, and then I'm going to say that, and da 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 da. And we play that all out. Jesus says, don't do that. Settle it in your minds, not to do that. In fact, don't meditate beforehand on how to answer. Because he knows human nature, and human nature is, all right, so if this happens, then I'll say this, and then this, and then this. And he says, don't do that. Trust me in this. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom. Where have we heard something like that before? It's when Moses said to God, I'm I'm not a good speaker. God says, I'll be your mouth, and I'll give you the wisdom to speak these things whenever you stand before Pharaoh. Whenever you stand before the people, I'll give you everything you need. You can trust me. In that, Well, we know that, that he did do that, and we know that he has done that. We know that he did it through the prophets. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to treat you like I treated Moses, like I treat the prophets. I'm going to give you the courage, but I'm also going to give you the wisdom and the words to speak in this situation. He says, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So you'll stand before your adversaries, and they won't be able to withstand or contradict that, but he doesn't promise that there's a happy ending in that. As we consider that, then we can consider the the witness of Stephen. When he is accused, what does he do? He makes an incredibly eloquent speech, convicting, supposedly, it did convict them actually, of sin. In the death of Jesus, he says, "You've always been a stiff-necked people." He gives he goes throughout all of Israelite history and then comes up with the idea that that you're just like you've always been. You're a stiff-necked people. So it's eloquent, and God was with him and gave him a mouth and wisdom, but did it turn out quote well? Well, only if you consider being stoned in the literal sense, um, good. So it, it's he's not promising that there'll be a happy ending here. But, but he is promising that he'll be with them. He says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers. Don't trust anybody at that level, and relatives and friends, and some of you be put to death. Well, one of the 12 is going to betray Jesus and deliver him up. But did he treat him any differently? No, he loved him. He loved him through all of it, even though that he knew that he would be the one who would be the betrayer. He loved him and loved him to the end. So we're not called to sit and be cynical and suspicious about those around us for fear that they might betray us. No, we're supposed to love the people that are around us. We're supposed to love our brothers. Jesus says, not only that, love your enemies. And he did that from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen prayed the same thing. So we're not supposed to be cynical towards those around us. Even if we think one of them is going to betray us, we're not supposed to take that attitude. We're to continue to love. We're continue, called to continue to live as disciples of Christ, as witnesses to him. <clears throat> he says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, that's not the first time he said that either, right? Blessed are you when, you're, when they revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil falsely against you in my name. And that's, there's your reward, because you're aligned with him, not only in your own mind, but in the mind of those in, in the society. And, and their hatred directed at you is really hatred of him, in the same way that when Samuel is angry because the people want a king, and they reject his sons, as rulers over them, he goes to God, and he's, he's you know hurt about that, and God says, don't worry about it, it's not about you, they're rejecting me as king, not you. And it's exactly what jesus is saying here he says but not a hair of your head will perish he's not promising you won't experience physical death but he's saying that that not a hair of your head will perish i gotcha throughout all eternity now they can't know that yet because they haven't seen the resurrection they can believe it but they can't know it right and he says by your endurance you will gain their li- your lives, which means by your endurance, what does that mean? Okay, it, remains the, it means that you remain faithful to him to the end, which means you don't give in to the fear and you continue to keep your head down, driving forward in the kingdom. And, it, and as long as you continue to do that, it proves that you have faith. Faith has to be proven. It has to be shown. It has to be tested. All those things are necessary. And, and so Jesus says, you know, keep your head down by your endurance you'll gain your life and and it's important that we recognize that it's important that we not shirk away from from what he's called us to it's important too that we live in this world in this moment that we not worry about the future we don't need to prepare what we're gonna say in advance we don't need to worry about the past because that's all been done away with in the blood of the cross our sins are forgiven We can only live in the present. We can't live with our minds and our feet and our heads up in the clouds, in the heavens, in the future. We have to live in the present and have to keep our wits about us, and we have to keep love in our hearts. We have to live as Jesus would live, and that's important because it's easy to lose sight of. And it's important not only for ourselves but for the rest of the world to see that we have something to live for. Their hope is not just when we die. No, we have something to live for today. It's important that we remember that because then we see the corrective that Paul has to give to the Thessalonians because some of those people have got their head in the clouds and they've got their head in the future and they're not concerned about the day. They're not concerned with the witness of their lives today. He says now, and this is Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 13. We command you, brothers. I mean, this is not, hey, we think it'd be a good idea. No, we command you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you, so don't be like those people. Keep away from those people who are choosing idleness. No, he says, because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We we didn't become wards of the community. No, we continued to work and provide, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, one of the things that I'm working on right now and, and finishing up on is a series for um, during Advent that looks at various uh, 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 the this historical setting, really, of, of Jesus's um, birth. And, and one of the groups that I look at is the Essenes, and the Essenes were basically a monastic community, but that monastic community works all day. They work and worship and live in community all the time, but they work hard. And, and then everything they do is for the benefit of the community. Nobody had their own purse. Nobody had their own whatever. It, no, it, they, they took what they needed from the communal purse, but everybody worked hard in that community. And you see that very same thing in the book of Acts, in, in Acts two forty-two to 47. We talk, he talks about what did that early church community look like. Well, they worked. They provided for those who needed to be provided for. And, and that's what Paul's saying is, is that that's the kind of community we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have a community that understands and takes seriously today. And what you've got is a group of people among you who have determined in their own minds that the world is coming to an end soon, and so there's no reason to actually do anything. I'm just going to wait for that to happen. I'm not going to continue to work, and work can be a variety of things, right? It can be evangelism. It can also be physical work. And Paul says if you're choosing to just sit and wait that's not how it works. And Paul says, in fact, stay away from anybody with that attitude. He said it wasn't because we didn't have the right, by preaching the gospel and teaching you and leading you, we had the right to receive from you everything we needed for our daily lives. But we, we didn't do it for that reason. We gave you in ourselves an example to imitate. We wanted you to know how to live in this world well, kind of the point of the incarnation, right? Jesus taught us how to navigate life in this world. It's not wrong to have the hope of the future. It's not wrong to have the hope of heaven, but not to the extent that it overshadows the understanding that he gave us work to do in this world while we're here, and we should do that joyfully. He says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, so we've, I've heard, you've already heard this from me. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Don't provide for people who could provide for themselves. He says, we, and this is, he's talking to the community, you know, so he, he's raising up an ethic for the community and says, don't, if you're not willing to work, then you don't get to eat. Everybody's got to contribute to the community if, if they're able. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. In other words, tend to your own knitting, and then you won't have time for this other busybody stuff. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You don't get to be a dependent member of the community if you're capable of of not being a dependent member of the community. And as for you brothers, don't weary in doing good. So he's saying everybody should do this, but you people who are doing this don't be weary in doing good in addition to everything else you're doing. And, and this is, again, one of the things that, that I think that we, we should always be cognizant of is, is that that as Christians, one of our witnesses is, is that this life is transformed by my salvation. It doesn't just have a future hope and a future effect. No, it has a present effect as well. And, and, but you've got to leave all that other stuff behind— in order to receive it. We have to show ourselves to be a unique people with unique desires, focused on his kingdom in all things. I mean, you see that again and again and again through Scripture, right? Abraham has to leave everything behind. God says, leave, come, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then he has to do it again with Isaac. He has to leave the familiar behind and be willing to give that up in order to follow God's call. You want... What do you want more? Do you want that child, or do you want intimacy with me and knowledge of me that you don't currently have? And so he was willing to suspend disbelief in order to do that, while at the same time knowing God's character was not that he would demand a child sacrifice. Jacob has to leave behind his family, and then he goes and connects with his mother's family. Then he's got to leave that family because both these families are incredibly dysfunctional. He gets most of the way back. Suddenly, Laban, his father-in-law, who he's just left, chases him down. They have to make a treaty between one another, and so they create a place called Mizpah, which says, you don't come this way, I don't go that way. But then he turns around and starts heading in that other direction, and immediately he's told that his brother Esau, whose last words about him were that I'm going to kill him, Is coming to meet him with with an army. So on the way to Laban, God deals with him by showing him, I'm with you wherever you are, by by seeing the angels and descending, ascending and descending. And now on the way back, God meets him again in his fear. What does he do? He wrestles with him. And Jacob gives in and said, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to go forward and meet my brother in this way. And so he has to give that up. Joseph, his son, has to leave the family. It's not his choice, but he has to leave the family because he's sold into slavery and then go down into Egypt. And then he has to decide, when his brothers come down, am I going to align myself with these people or am I going to move forward without them? And he chooses to love the brothers who had sold him into slavery. He was a changed man because of his experience. Moses has to leave his birth family. It's not his choice. He's a baby. But then he's taken into Pharaoh's family. And as an adult, he has to make a decision. Am I going to align myself with Pharaoh? Or am I going to align myself with the people that I was born into? And he makes the decision to do that. And then they reject him as the leader. And he goes out and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. He creates a new family there. And so then God says, leave this family. Go back to those two families. Deal with both of them. Deal with them in different ways. And God goes with him gives him a mouth and wisdom to speak these things. And so in order to go up, he had to give up. Sometimes God takes it away from us, and sometimes he gives it the opportunity and the option of giving it up willingly. The people had to leave behind what was familiar in Egypt and move into the wilderness in the hope of the promised land that most of them never got to. Jesus had to leave behind equality with God in order that he could be found in the form of a man, Paul says, the form of a servant, in order that his vision for us to be with him could be realized because there was no earthly redeemer who was capable of completing the task. The disciples had to leave behind everything to follow Jesus. Paul had to leave behind his entire identity, his Jewishness, his tribe of Benjamin, his Pharisee, his rabbi, and and he says, ultimately... Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And count those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So we need to have a compelling vision for the future that draws us to it with the knowledge that we're not going to get there in this life, but that this life ultimately matters to the next. It's hard to do that, and so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written in 1646, the first question is, what's the chief end of man, which is the question we all want to know. Why am I here? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever beginning right now, (laughs) we're called into participation in that kingdom spiritually today, even in the midst of the, the trials and tribulations of this world. We're never to glory completely in the things of earth, but we're not also supposed to dismiss those things. We're to navigate those things by not letting them own us, by keeping our eyes fixed on the prize that lays ahead of us. But we have to tend to our knitting and tend to the work that we've been given to do in this life. We're not to be idle. No, we're not to be idle in a physical sense, and we're not to be idle in a spiritual sense either. We're to be working constantly for the spread of the kingdom of God. And he gave us gifts and talents to navigate this life with. The incarnation tells us one really important thing, and that is this life actually matters. It's, it's interesting. We, we've, got to be, we've got to develop, I think, a different mindset if we're going to reach the world. We've got to paint a compelling vision of the future, but we have to paint a compelling vision of the future that's not just heaven. It's this life. And here's an example that I want to give. So yesterday, the 12th of November in 1954, Ellis Island was closed. Okay, so Ellis Island served as the central point of of, uh, bringing in immigrants, processing immigrants into the United States from 1892 to 1924. From 1924 to 1954, it was used for a whole variety of purposes, but it no longer served as a place for intake for immigrants. But during the, what what would that be, 32 years, I guess, um, that it served, that purpose of processing immigrants into America, 12 million people passed through. Ellis Island, 12 million people. Now, okay, we don't have a great concept of what that would mean, except this. About 40 percent of Americans today can trace their American roots to Ellis Island. So here's what I want to say. Those people, why did they come? They had a compelling vision for what they could receive, what they could do in America. Where did they get that compelling vision? Well, they got it from hearing about other people who had already been there and done that, who were living the, quote, American dream. And they told the people back home, there's great opportunity here. But they had to leave everything behind and come here in order to receive that. Well, I, I'm going to say to you that I believe that, that the church is actually God's designed processing center for immigrants. People who are willing to leave behind their familiar surroundings in order to answer Jesus' call to follow. Because he laid out a compelling vision of the future for them. We as Christians have to show there's hope of a better life now and eternal life as the ultimate reward. But we have to define for ourselves what that better life now means. That's the important thing. Is it the health and wealth gospel? Or is it a new, intimate, and loving relationship with the living God made available by the gift of the Holy Spirit and through the cross of Jesus Christ? We, we have to take that attitude. We have to take that attitude, that that, that future, compelling future of, of, of living in the presence of God is is so compelling that we're willing to pursue it no matter what we get thrown at us in this life that's truly important but the incarnation of jesus shows exactly what it means to lay down that which we have treasured in order to do the will of god he had to lay down equality with god as not something to be grasped in order to save us are we willing to do that for his sake for the one who did it for us and are we willing to do it for those that we say that we love No matter what. But we're to do that and live this life with joy and faith. And in our endurance, we will gain our lives, just as Jesus said to his disciples that day.